Hi there, I'm Jim. I'm John. Let's talk teaching. Welcome to Let's Talk Teaching, a podcast from the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology here at Illinois State University. I'm Jim G. Joining me today is Dr. John Baldwin. He's a professor in the School of Communication here at Illinois State. He is also the 2016 Outstanding University Teaching Award winner for tenure-track faculty here on campus. John, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. It is great to have you here. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, let me just put it this way. When we talk about your teaching... I can speak about your teaching today from from experience because I had the honor of uh, of being in several of your classes, and you had the honor of correcting all of my spelling and grammar in my master's thesis. So, um, hopefully, I put some funny comments in your margins. <laughs> you did, you did, you did a really great job. I mean, it was a great experience. Um, and we're not talking about theses today and doing that, although that would be a, a great episode to do at some point. What I would like to talk to you about is is you are very involved in. Um, uh, study abroad, and also, of course, you're teaching intercultural communication, and we live in interesting times uh, as far as culture and communication goes, but you also have some exciting projects coming up. So I'd love to talk about that with you today. So to start, I'd like to ask you about the uh, the teaching award process and specifically about the creation of your teaching portfolio. What was that experience like, and, and what did you learn? I learned a lot from putting together the portfolio. There's a whole bunch of different documents that you have to assemble you have to think about a teaching situation that you've had and how you would respond to that, what you've learned from it. You have to have a philosophy of teaching, which made me think about what really drives my teaching. Uh-huh. You have to summarize the evaluations, the quantitative and the qualitative scores. So there are many different parts to this evaluation. Uh, you have to choose artifacts that go in. So I might have letters where people have commented on my teaching or exercises, and I have to choose the very best to, mm-hmm. po- to put into the portfolio. Uh, it's painstaking, and actually one thing I learned is sometimes you're nominated more than once before you actually get an award. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, and learning is often an iterative process, it isn't is. it? So, right. so there you go. And I'm very honored to get the award because there are many, many excellent teachers here mm-hmm. at ISU, and one of the reasons I like ISU is because while we do value good research, we especially value good teaching. Mm-hmm. And I tell students, if you want to study mm-hmm. teaching, if you want good teachers, ISU is the place to be. You teach in the areas of intercultural communication. Um, I mean, you do a little bit of everything, right? Um, but And also uh, qualitative uh, research and whatnot. So you've done a lot of traveling over the years, and you've always been able to tie that into your teaching. Tell us a little bit about some of your adventures outside of campus and uh, and how you've tied that into your teaching over the years. Sure. And this relates to my portfolio because one of the things I talked about in my portfolio was mentoring, and we might come back to that. And one of them is really internationalization. And in the School of Communication, we actually have two different committees. One is on international experiences, and one is greater awareness of domestic diversity issues, such as women's issues in the classroom, transgender students' issues, Mm -hmm. issues for people of color. And really, I believe that these two are related to some overarching global learning goals about uh, learning the place of American culture in the world, Mm -hmm. learning our role in that world as citizens. Mm -hmm. And I even tell my students sometimes up front, I'm not here to give you job skills. I'm here to make you better citizens and communication partners and Mm -hmm. uh, spouses or, or romantic partners. 
So with that in mind, I focus a lot on internationalization in different contexts. One of those is bringing international ideas to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So in most of my classes, we study culture. We'll have guest speakers on different languages and the structure of those languages in one course. In another course, we look at different cultural perspectives of communication and aging. Mm-hmm. And several of my courses are all about culture and communication, both being aware of our own identity and our cultural identities here within the United States and also traveling abroad. Uh, the other thing that this has led me to is I've been trying for a few years to get a cross-cultural program, getting our communication students into Latin America. Mm-hmm. And we finally have success with a trip to Panama coming up in June of 2017. And we just found out that we have enough students to make this trip. We'll oh, be- great. Yeah. We have um, a good number of students coming in the trip with us. And the way we're building this program actually is to have our students in the classroom with Panamanians. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to have as many Panamanians in the class as there are Americans and we'll basically spend the month in class with the Panamanians. We'll have excursions around town, uh, movie nights, because I'm teaching identity in the media. Oh, great. Uh, so we'll get together at night and eat popcorn and watch Latin American films with mm-hmm. subtitles. And uh, with, the, with the Latin Americans to really see the, the world from their perspective. That's great. And really the whole point of this is to uh, really get our students, even though we're going together as a group of Americans, to try to get them outside of the American mindset to see the world from a different view. Mm-hmm. And that idea, the opportunity to finally be able to do this uh, and, and provide that immersion for students is great. What tips might you have or what have you learned about about trying to expose that to students who can't leave the classroom? In other words, bringing that, that idea into the classroom. Are there little things you can do? Yeah, there are. And that really touches on something I was thinking about, and that is the notion of internationalization very often we think refers to us taking students to another country, mm-hmm. but really internationalization is a way of seeing the world, as seeing ourselves as citizens of something bigger than simply the United States or normal. Mm-hmm. So some of that deals with bringing speakers on campus. So they have the global seminar series where we can hear speakers about or from different cultures. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we bring it in different ways by having speakers come to our classroom. So mm-hmm. one year I had a someone from Iberzajan who was over in psychology, and he came and he spoke to my class about uh, about his culture. <laughs> I can't say that. Yeah. Uh, Iberzaji culture. Yeah. So um, I try to have students, uh, rather, I try to have speakers come from different cultures to my yeah. classes. Um, certainly not every class is, is useful for this. For example, if you're studying something like mathematics, well, mathematics are much the same all around the world. Right, right. Uh, so that's part of it is just get, bringing concepts to the classroom, but then also part of it is helping students see that they have culture from even up wherever they're from, and mm-hmm. that there might be differences between Chicago land area and rural farm culture in Illinois. Right, and each one of us is made up of complex identities. Yeah, and so I have one whole class that really that most of the assignments are focused on making the students aware of what they bring to the table in terms of their own identities. And do you find, because we're all kind of working through that, um, uh, not just because of the times in which we, we find ourselves now where we it, it's obvious we are in, in some ways a much more polarized country than, than we thought. Um, and we've had some, we've done some episodes and we've had some discussions and certainly we have done programming on campus about talking about these issues in your class and whatever the appropriate uh, context, you know, for your discipline. You must 
have experienced over the years, because you teach both graduate and undergraduate level intercultural communication still, right? Yes. You must have experienced a lot of shock on the part of some students when they have that realization that the world isn't exactly what they thought it was. How do you deal with that? How, how, what have you seen, I guess, I should ask first? And, and, and how do you help students kind of along that road? Yeah, because I teach upper-level students mostly, uh-huh. I don't experience that as much, or at least I don't see it. Maybe the students are used to masking their shock when they talk about new cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think in today's mediated society that it would be hard to show up on the doorstep of college without having some exposure to other cultures right. because of the Internet. So mm-hmm. I think students are ready. They see things on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, some students are resistant to analyzing especially their own privilege so when we talk about white privilege mm-hmm. in the classroom, uh, that's a little harder discussion. Sure. And often there are other students who have thought through it. So the students, we do a lot with discussion in the classes mm-hmm. because the students will learn from other student experiences much easier than they will from me telling them about it. Mm-hmm. So we do try to have a lot of class discussions. And especially in these classes, we usually set ground rules for discussion mm-hmm. and say, here's some rules. Um, or how to talk about difficult topics. A lot of it, I think, is me trying to model the notion of openness mm-hmm. and, and sometimes being vulnerable. So uh, one of the things I talked about in my portfolio was um, the semester was coming along and we were having an election and I was making little jabs at one of the candidates, uh, just little sideways sarcastic things, not even mentioning the name, but everyone knew who I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And one of my students, who was uh, quite a different stance and much in the minority, mm-hmm. said, well, you're promoting openness and dialogue, but you keep making these jabs at this candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you expect us to be open if you keep making these jokes? Mm-hmm. And I came back to the next class, and I said, you're right. And I made an apology. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I tried to say, okay, we can talk about issues. Let's not talk about personalities, mm-hmm. and let's not make any claims without evidence. Mm-hmm. But all claims should be able to be made in the classroom. So from there, we tried to have some discussions. At some points, uh, my one student would make a comment and people would roll their eyes. Sure. And then we would call them on it. Yeah. I mean, maybe not directly, but I'd come back and I'd say, listen, open dialogue means not rolling your eyes Mm -hmm. when someone says something you disagree with. And that's one of the hardest things you can learn learn to do, but you're right. You're absolutely right. (laughs) So now I'm in a class, and it's a a smaller class. It's, well, 27 people. But it's fairly open, uh-huh. so we're doing this. Everyone stands up in the classroom and says, I am, and then they fill in a group right. or something that they identify with. I right. am a Cubs fan. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, open, open. <laughs> uh, so someone says, I am a sister, and I am. Yeah. So we get towards the back of the class, and we find out one of our students um, stands up, and he says, um, I am queer. And the one right behind him says, well, I am gay. Mm-hmm. So the, then we talk about the differences between queer and gay. But the idea that these yeah. students would be so open in the classroom right. Right. and just discuss these things as part of our ongoing conversation uh-huh. says that something hopefully good has happened by this time for people to be open. Yeah. You you keyed in on something important about setting ground rules. Do you address that in your syllabus or is it just a discussion you have at the beginning of the semester or – I do this more – I have two intercultural classes at uh-huh. the undergraduate level, and one of them is the more experiential. We do more games and more exercises. Mm-hmm. Our, our exams, our essays are about your identity, mm-hmm. your own personal experiences observing or, or uh, being the target of prejudice. 
And that's the one where I actually pass out a set of ground rules that we talk about. And I have a list of ground rules. Uh, and I've seen some other stuff. Uh, we'll even talk about these. I saw these um, at Bone Student Center. One time we were talking and they was sitting on a, a paper. Um, Post-it note yeah, thing or something. Yeah. Like that. An, so, an easel or something like that. Exactly. So one of the notes says, when we're having these, these discussions, come expecting to be changed. Yeah. You know, come as you are, but don't leave as you were. Yeah. Um, you know, pause to listen to understand where the person is coming from. Yeah. So what I do now, and the, the upper level class is more about theory and research, so mm-hmm. I don't give them the ground rules, but mm-hmm. we're still modeling it all the time where someone says something and I don't show shock or surprise, and I listen and I validate the point no matter what the point is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything, but we talk about the ability to disagree Yeah. if someone says something. but we. So it's not largely discussion. We're not discussing issues as much uh, as the research. But then... <clears throat> Uh, because we just came from a unit on whiteness, so I'm reading James Baldwin's essay, Stranger in the Village. Okay. And I'm just going to say, we're going to have a dramatic reading here. Oh. And I do a dramatic reading of James Baldwin's Stranger in the Village, which is about being a black man in America in the 1950s. Uh-huh. And I said, you can agree with him or not agree with him. That's not the point. The point is, can you, you know, read into his life? Part of being a communicator is stepping into the shoes of the other person to see the world from that person's view. Mm-hmm. And I'm not asking you to agree with it, but I'm asking you to understand it. See, I think, and that's and as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about in my own teaching and and with the faculty members uh, with whom I work here at CTLT, when we talk about things like this, I think you've hit on something, and and that's the when you're when you're building this community in your classroom, what's the what is the thing that how do I put this? Um, it's the judgmental. Mm-hmm. It's that judgmental full stop at the end of the thought. That's what we want to avoid. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the thing that and and so and I've never been able to quite frame it like that until until I heard you talking about that. It's that you don't have to agree. You but you know we listen to everyone and and but you don't go that extra mm-hmm. step which seems so natural to us right. as human beings or Americans or whatever it is. It seems so natural nowadays to that we have to put that yeah. judgment on there. I think that something else that I've really learned from my wife who teaches multicultural counseling in a much a more homogenous audience than I do. Okay. And she says that we're going to talk about some issues, and I am not here to resolve the issues. Yeah. I'm not here to resolve yeah. the discussion. I'm not here to make you less angry, and sometimes we feel that if there's um, people upset in the classroom or there's this tense discussion that we must solve it for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my wife says, no, what we need to do is we need to be able to sit with them in their hurt. Yeah. Uh, and that's great. We can say up front, we're not going to resolve the issues. We're not here to find um, the all the answers. We're here to ask questions and for you to continue thinking about it. Which, is, again, is somewhat counter to our nature because yeah. we like to, we, we think in terms of stories. You and I have mm-hmm. talked about that a lot yeah. and, and I've written about that. But we think in terms of stories and we like to have an ending. Yes. It doesn't have to be a happy ending all the time, but we like closure. We want right. we want to put issues to bed. And sometimes you can't do mm-hmm. that, at least not in the course of a, of a class or a, or a, a semester-long course. So this, this actually also relates not only to issues of diversity and and these very difficult discussions, but it also deals with teaching. So again, I'm teaching intercultural communication mm-hmm. at three different levels. So sometimes it might be the same ideas, the same theory, but we deal with it differently each time. At the lowest level, I say, these are some of the concepts, let's apply them. Yeah. At the second level, I say, these are some concepts, let's talk about the problems with these concepts, and let's see where they break down. Mm-hmm. 
And then the third level, the graduate level, the students are reading research and coming in. We're going to discuss a theory, mm-hmm. and uh, everyone has read different articles, and the students actually choose the articles they're going to read, so they have mm-hmm. a lot of choice, and I try to build a lot of choice, mm-hmm. uh, especially the higher we go, the more choice there is, even in terms of which questions you answer in the test, mm-hmm. uh, what form is the test going to take, what are we going to read for, for class. So the students choose the reading, and then they come back, and the readings actually challenge the theory. Uh-huh. So we're reading the theory, yeah. and I say, okay, well, some of what you found disagrees with the theory that the article's about. Mm-hmm. And then we get to talk about that, and I promise them, typically in the upper-level classes, I promise not to give you a definition of culture. <laughs> uh, well, and instead, and we're going to challenge every definition there is and yeah. see what its strengths and limitations are. Yeah, and I still I still get that. And I remember teaching COM 110, the, the introductory uh, speech course, and there's a little bit in that about culture. Um, and uh, that... That was hard for me not to try to define culture for them, but that was one of the great pieces of advice I got. Yeah. Let them figure it out. So, yeah. um, And that's true with a lot of the learning that, that, that they go through, I think. And that might depend on the level of teaching. Like if I'm teaching a, a lower-level audience yeah. and it's not a class about culture, like we have a very basic introduction to communication theory class, and when I'm yeah. guest lecturing in that class, yeah. then I tend to say, here is a definition of culture that will right. work for today. Yeah, but I'm not here to deconstruct this. I'm here to introduce yeah. the concept. So I yeah. always have to, to judge how much I analyze in terms of the needs for the class right. and what my goals for the class are. For the upper-level classes, I'm moving more towards their ability to understand and explore and do research. It's a theory mm-hmm. and research course. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I'm, except that I want to evaluate the students in some way, I'm almost thinking, like in my graduate classes, I stopped having exams. Mm-hmm. In my upper-level undergraduate classes, we move more and more to essays. Mm-hmm. And I tell them up front, I see it's going to be an in-class essay exam. Here are your questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Go get ready. Yeah, go get ready. Well, because it's the preparation. That's yeah. how they learn is through yeah. the preparation. Um, going back to what you were talking about, about whether or not to define culture, I think that someone who's listening to this who doesn't teach in the discipline of communication but is still really striving to to overcome that hurdle of uh, of having a group of people in class and actually building a, a real community of learners. It may make more sense to to say, well, here's one definition of culture because we need to talk about our own identities because right. that's the important part. Right. So that facilitates so even if you're teaching a math class or you're teaching some other in you know, you're teaching in one of the sciences or you're teaching a health sciences class or criminal justice or something like that, uh, I think that there are things that that faculty faculty could do there there is a discussion to be had early in the semester about who are we and we want to be respectful of each other's ideas and so i think actually you know i've been going back and forth but i think actually you're right putting that putting that at least a definition of culture mm-hmm. out there uh, now which definition you choose i guess depends on <laughs> depends on your audience depends on your audience right yeah. Uh, but you're talking about developing a community of learners. So really one of my underlying goals, and I try to model this also for my students, is I want them to be lifelong learners. We're in the age yeah. of the Internet. Yeah. We're in the age where the students are going to sell back their textbooks if yeah. they even buy them. Right. Um, so what I want is – I'm talking about intercultural communication. Out front, I'm going to say you are not going to be an expert in any culture – after this class, that's not our goal. Our goal is to give you the skills, the types of yeah. questions to ask so that you get assigned to Mexico or you have a worker in your department who's from India. You can know what to do to explore and to understand what that might mean for the, mm-hmm. if it's even relevant to that who that person is and how that person sees him or herself. 
So I'm also here to try to, to get the students to love learning. So, of course, I continue to study languages. You do, and I wanted to ask you about yeah. that, too. How many languages have you studied thus far? How many have I studied? Or, well, I don't know how to yeah. phrase it. How many are you, how many do you, I don't want to say how many languages do you speak, because yeah. I don't know what, what the threshold is for being that, fluent. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I yeah. would say I'm conversational in, okay. uh, in Spanish and Portuguese. Okay. I can understand some basic French, uh, probably German and Italian. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there are other languages that I've studied and couldn't even write anymore. Sure. Like uh, Mandarin. Mandarin. I know you were yeah. studying Arabic at one I'm, point. I'm, I remember yeah, that. some Arabic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so why? And uh, I don't mean that yeah. to sound judgmental. Yeah. Why? What do you get? I know you're getting something out of this. What yeah. is that? I'm curious. Well, part of it is I'm just a nerd. <laughs> Let's, let's, just, let's be upfront about it. I got some computer games I can I know, introduce you to. If I, know, you want. I know that's inconceivable. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. part of it is uh, I like learning just the languages. It builds connection between people. Mm-hmm. So when you can say, you know, when you greet uh, someone, one of my friends from Morocco introduced me to his father and I knew enough Arabic to say hi to his father. It's, it's nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. And to say that in Arabic and his father yeah. was surprised that I cared enough to learn. Yeah. Beyond hello, but to yeah. say, nice to meet you, you know, God bless you, whatever, in mm-hmm. Arabic. So I do it for that, and I also, because some of the courses I teach are about psychology of language, when you learn other languages, you learn the ways that languages can change and mm-hmm. how that might change uh, the way we think about the world. Mm-hmm. When there are um, words or phrases in a language that just don't exist in English because they serve a function right. that is not as important to English speakers. Mm-hmm. So um, idioms or something like that. Yeah, like it. idioms. Sometimes it's even even a particle. So in Korean, there's a particle that you put at the end of a sentence or a different one for a question. Really? Okay. That shows that you have a higher status than me. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. So I would say, if I'm saying uh, hello and your higher status, I have to say, how's it going? I say, annyeonghaseumnika. And sumnika. that okay. little sumnika simply means it's, this is a question. And I'm asking the question of someone of a higher status. I see. So what happens is early in the conversation, we must determine if it's not apparent who has the higher status uh, so that I can use the right so, word endings. So, so it's not something, we're getting a little far afield here, but uh, I'm fascinating. No, uh, uh, so it's not something like in German where you have a formal way of addressing versus an informal way when you're speaking, doing a direct address mm-hmm. to someone else. Mm-hmm. It, it, you actually, because you just do that as a matter of politeness, typically. It's actually... It's it's, an, it's it's a like a something that you add at the end of the sentence. Yeah, it'd be like saying "sir" or something like that. Okay. But, but at the end of every single question, you might say that. Wow. So if you ever listen to someone speaking Korean, you might begin to hear like uh, often at the end of sentences, there's a little sound at the almost, end, of the sentence. and it creates almost that sort of sing, what we would almost call a sing-songy sort of pattern to it to an extent. No, not necessarily. It's just okay. something that happens at the end of sentences, okay. depending on on the context of the sentence. Gotcha. Whereas, yeah. now certainly if you speak Spanish, you say tu and usted, and you have to know when to use which one, and yeah. you know that that changes from country to country, uh-huh. even with some subtle differences, there are these rules. So yeah, I can say sir or ma'am in English, and I can use, uh, would you please pass the salt, instead of, hey, give me the salt. Yeah. Uh, so we realize we have these different registers in English as well, but the very fact that you have word endings in certain countries yeah. to indicate this, yeah. um, for me, it's just interesting. It's like a puzzle. I, I like puzzles. Yeah. But I like language puzzles more than anything. Okay. So one final thing as we're running uh, a little long sure. on time here. I, I did want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about mentorship sure. or being a mentor. Um, I find people are daunted by that word mm-hmm. because they realize that it is a big responsibility. Right. Or on the other hand, well, of course I can be a mentor. 
Yeah, a lot of my mentorship with students, of course, occurs through graduate studies. So yeah. I have a lot of graduate students. Yeah. And it's really something that someone said early on in my career in 1994, one of my students finished up his whole thesis and he wanted to turn it into a journal article. So I always tell the student, hey, that's up to you. I'll work with you if you want to. So he did some work and then I wanted to do those corrections like you mentioned early on about all my corrections in your paper. I said, but let me sit down with you and walk you through my mental process as I'm Mm -hmm. reading this Mm -hmm. and why I would change the wording here. Mm -hmm. And later he said, he said, you know, we worked together for two years and that was, I learned the most from that sit down session where we wrote together. Mm -hmm. So uh, as much as possible uh, at the student's initiative, I try to get my graduate students to Mm -hmm. conference. I try to get my undergraduate students to take their stuff to the undergraduate research symposium. Uh, But even then, especially in my theory and research class, I tell the students, there's like 13 groups. It's a big class. And I said, uh, unfortunately for me, this is like 13 independent studies. Mm Mm-hmm. And you, know, you can come to my office as much as you, as you want. We can shoot the breeze and talk about your ideas. We can talk about how to make a good review of literature. We can talk about how to ask questions if you're doing an interview study and, and how to facilitate that. So I said, really, I will give you as much guidance as you want. Um, in many classes, sometimes that means I meet with each group several times throughout the semester. And But I really, I tell them I want this to be a formative process where I'm not merely grading the end project, but I want to... to work with you through the types of decisions you would need to make to do a good research project mm-hmm. or you know good research in an organization what mm-hmm. sorts of things do you need to ask and i just think students learn more from sure. from you walking alongside with them than simply grading the project at the end and it's a, it, i think there's an interesting relationship between being a mentor um and facilitating a class the way we've been talking about mm-hmm. today um that when you're building that community of learners you don't want you're not the you're not the star of the show you yeah. are the facilitator yes. you're the guide on the journey to right. use that that phrase it's kind of the same thing when you're a mentor you're no longer the hero right you yeah. are you are the mentor yeah. uh, in that regard. So what do you have coming up next? I know you're, you said, we've talked a lot about Panama. Uh, you are doing some things yet uh, this semester uh, with uh, the Office of International Studies and Programs. Is that right? Actually, I am working with Office of International Studies and Programs a lot. I am on the International Studies Advisory Council, mm-hmm. which is people from all over the campus, one person from each uh, college is on this council to discuss issues pertinent to international studies. And then we've been meeting with people from Amali, which is the uh, Asian, Latin America, Middle East, uh, Africa, and indigenous peoples. Uh, basically, it's what we would call global studies, uh-huh. though it's really focused on the non-Western world. Right. And we've been meeting together to try to find out some, uh, what we would call global learning objectives that could apply equally to Amali courses or to international studies courses. Okay. Um, and then actually the other uh, interesting news is I've never been to Africa, and my wife and I are going, actually right before graduation, we're going to Africa, uh, where my wife is going to be doing some training on trauma and talking to some people who oh. deal, deal with a lot of trauma uh-huh. in the community, and uh-huh. I'm going to learn. I'm going to tag along and learn about African culture, at Great. least one African culture. Yeah. And then... Um, We'll come back just in time to go to Panama. There you go. And while you're in Africa, you're not just, uh, you're learning, but you're also teaching, right? I'm teaching online. Yeah, I'll yeah. actually be teaching my students here yes. from Africa. And I hope if there's enough internet connection in the small city that I'm in, yes. I hope to be uh, sending podcasts from um, from this veldt or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. That sounds exciting. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. It's nice to be here. 
And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Let's Talk Teaching. You can find out more about what we talked about on our website at ctlt.illinoisstate.edu. Click on the podcast link in the upper right of the page. You can also find information on how to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For Dr. John Baldwin, for all of my colleagues here at CTLT, until we talk again, happy teaching. Happy teaching.